Please open your Bibles with me to John chapter 8. We'll pick up our reading in verse 31 in just a moment. You're living in a state, if uh, you're in Tennessee, and all the neighboring states would be similar to the statistics of of the state of Tennessee. According to Pew Research Center, 71% of Tennessee residents claim that belief in God is very important, which begs the question, are seven out of 10 residents of our commonwealth in a right relationship with God? If not, how would you go about trying to convince a deaf person who thinks that he can hear that he in fact cannot hear at all? Or how would you go about, think about it, what strategy might you use to try to convince a blind person who thinks that she can see clearly that she cannot see at all? How would you go about seeking to convince a shackled person who thinks that they are unbound, that they are not free at all? Today's passage deals with that dilemma. The dilemma is... Sin-bound people who are totally persuaded that they are spiritually free. In my estimation, there is no one more difficult to reach with the gospel than the spiritually inoculated. Now, Brother Tommy just prayed in our pastoral prayer for our frontier missionary partners who are serving all around the world. They're engaged in taking the gospel in most of those cases, to people who have never heard the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, without which they will perish into a Christless eternity in hell forever. And I have had the great privilege of being well acquainted with a number of frontier missionaries in my little lifetime. Those who are seeking to push back the darkness by taking the light of Christ to people who have never heard the gospel. I've even had the sober privilege of these feet walking in places where no one around me had ever heard the name of Jesus. And that sacred task must be embarked upon by every generation of Christians. I just want to push pause right now and say, have you prayed lately about whether or not God wants you to go someplace where someone's never heard the gospel? Pray it again right now. God, do you want to use me? Do you want to send me? Don't presume that God just wants you in your comfort zone the rest of your life. Every generation of Christians must embrace the sacred task of taking the gospel to unreached peoples. But today, we will hear Jesus tell the truth to a religious culture who thinks they are already right with God. I believe it is one of the primary dilemmas where we live today. Most of the people you will meet in the greater Mid-South, the region in which we live, are under the presumption that they are rightly related to God. 
By God's grace, many are. But such is the dilemma of our text. And I invite you to let your eyes fall on this. The most important words that you're going to hear today are going to happen in the next three minutes and 50 seconds. I read this passage out loud four times this morning. And it took me three minutes and 50 seconds. Now, I may pause because this is a sobering text. It may take four minutes and 10 seconds. But for the next five minutes, would you open your ears and beg God to shine light into your soul? It is the most important words I will say for the remainder of the time that I stand right here. Listen to God. John chapter 8, verse 31 So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So, if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love Me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Verse 48, the Jews answered and said to him, 
do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me, but I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Verse 54, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is the father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am am therefore they picked up stones to throw at him but jesus hid himself and went out of the temple i'm gonna pray in just a moment but before i pray i don't care if you listen to anything else i say if i'm boring you to tears just rewind and keep reading that passage take you about four minutes you'll be able to read it several times over for the remainder of the time we're here it would be time very 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 well spent but I am going to pray, and I'm going to tell you what I'm going to pray so that you can decide whether or not you want to join me in asking God to do what I'm going to ask him to do. I'm not going to just presume that you want this. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to pray, and then I invite you to join me in that prayer if you so desire. I'm going to pray that God would open blind eyes, that he would open deaf ears, and that he would set anyone among us who is shackled by sin, even under the delusion that they're saved, that he would set you free in Christ. For those who so desire to pray that way, join me at the throne of grace and let's ask God to do just that. Oh God, would you by your Holy Spirit for the glory of your Son open the eyes of the blind, open the ears of the deaf, deaf and cause us to see Christ for who he is, setting us free from the shackles and tyranny of sin, not only in that initial salvation, not only in justification, but in an ongoing abiding in Christ and bearing fruit for your glory, salvation. Save the lost and sanctify the saved. Prove us to be true disciples of Jesus. And those most difficult to reach, those who think they're okay with God. Would you especially save anyone under that delusion today? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's passage, we're going to not deal with every phrase. It's a big one. But we are going to deal with the categories that are presented there. And there are marks of true faith and marks of false faith. I've gathered the verses and the themes under those two headings, marks of true faith and marks of false faith. There's two marks of true faith and there are three marks of false faith. 
Number one, concerning true believers, true believers are transformed, changed by the truth. True believers are transformed by the truth. We see this in verse 32 and following. It's a very familiar verse. Many of us could repeat it even without looking at it. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. But what does that mean? The word for truth in verse 32 is used seven times in this passage. It's obviously right here in this verse, verse 32, two times you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. If you just skim the passage, you'll see it again in verse 40. See it two times in verse 44. You'll see it in 45 and 46. In John's gospel, he uses that word a lot, and he uses it in a distinct way. When John says truth, he may not mean what you're thinking in your mind when you hear the word truth. Not to go through the whole gospel of John, but to give you two explicit connections to what John means when he says truth. He means John 1.17 and he means John 14.6. In him is truth. Truth is intricately connected to a person, the person of Christ. In John 14.6, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is a person for John who's writing this gospel. These people thought that they were already free. They say in the very next verse, verse 33, we've never been enslaved to anyone. But Jesus is clearly asserting that they are bound. Verse 32, you are not free. Verse 34, you are still a slave. So our point is, believers are transformed by the truth. That is because the truth does something to you. If you hold the truth, but it doesn't shape you, then you don't really know the truth. Our point is believers are transformed. You're changed by the truth. The truth transforms all who abide in Christ or else you don't believe it. Verse 31 says that these people believe though, pastor. Those who had believed in him. And I'm here today to say no, they did not. Not because the Bible's wrong, but because the Bible explains, as Leon Morris writes, and I believe got correct, we would expect a discourse introduced in this fashion to be addressed to genuine disciples. But as it unfolds, it appears that these Jews were nothing of the sort. You see, I would say the believers in verse 30, last week's text, John's describing genuine converts. Many came to believe in him. But verse 31 referring to those who are not of genuine faith, false converts. I believe today's passage is exposing the marks of spurious faith. We'll deal with three of those, as I said. That is a faith that is not what it purports to be. It is false while it claims to be true. The faith of verse 31, I would say, is what Jim Eliff describes as wasted faith. Not genuine Christian faith faith. No matter what a person says, Jesus explains in today's passage that the preponderance of one's life is the evidence of the veracity of one's faith. That's why James, the Lord's brother, wrote in his epistle, I will show you my faith by my works, James 2.18. 
Why would I suggest that these Jews do not savingly believe in Jesus? And our first point is because they were not changed by the truth. Verse 45 and verse 46, Jesus says plainly that they do not believe. But because, verse 45, I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Verse 46, if I speak truth, why do you not believe me? So verse 31 has to fit with verse 45 and 46. They believed. They had a faith. It just wasn't the Christian faith. So I'm stressing in our first point from today's text that the validation that these people do not truly rely upon Jesus by faith is seen in the fact that they are not being transformed by the truth. They may acknowledge the truth. They may be like some of us and repeat the truth often. They may even propagate the truth to other people. But their faith is proven futile by their unchanged life. The evidence is many places in this passage that they have not been transformed by the truth they claim to believe. Look at verse 34. Jesus refers to these people as, quote, the slave of sin. Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The word for commits, practices, in verse 34, the one who practices sin, commits sin, is a present active participle. So I want to talk to the real believers for just a moment and those who think, oh no, am I one of those false converts? Well, this word for commits in verse 34 is so important and helpful to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, Spirit for putting it in the Bible. Present active participle. That means it is not referring to an act of sin. Rather, it is referring to an active ongoing servitude to sin instead of to Christ. Sin is your master. You may, ex you may, with exception, willpower yourself not to obey it, but the preponderance of your life is servitude to sin. It's what John wrote about the same author in his epistle in 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in Christ sins no one who sins has seen him or know him. Again, present, active, ongoing. The ESV translates the word in verse 34, as I said, practices. Everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. So our first point is simply this, and we don't, I could preach it all day long. I just want to say it to you straight and simple and brief as I can. Jesus is saying that these people's lives are typified by a pattern of slavery to sin. Sin is their master, which according to Romans 6.14 proves that they are not living under grace. So number one, the truth transforms all who trust Christ by faith and abide in his word. Ongoing transformation through the truth, looking to Christ, being changed into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another, is a mark of true faith, and these people didn't have it. The second mark of true belief, not only being transformed by the truth, but more fundamentally, it's because true believers are set free by the Son, S-O-N. That's verse 36. 
So the second mark, we won't look at any others of the true believer. We'll look at three marks of the unbeliever in just a moment, the false believer. But the second mark of the true believer is they are set free by the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 36. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. The Son makes you free. He does the work all by Himself. And when He does it, the aftermath is chains broken. Fast bound in sin, my spirit lay. Imprisoned by sin, shackled by sin. In that dungeon of darkness, and sin's tyranny, but God's eye diffused a quickening ray and flamed the dungeon with light and instantly... You're set free from the shackles of sin. Verse 36 is the glorious doctrine of union with Christ. The Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. It's freedom from the tyranny of sin. Freedom from the tyranny of Satan. Freedom from the terror of death. Now many people outside of Christ say, I don't know what you're talking about, tyranny. I love my life. I'm happy that I'm not one of those Christian people with all your little rules and regulations and fundamentalism and being bound. You see, lost people are under a delusion, and we all know it because many in this room, at least many in this room know it because you were at one time lost. And you can remember what it was like to think, you're free, they're bound. You can do whatever you want. These people have all the rules. But do you know that a believer, God forbid, a true Christian... A genuine convert, somebody who has real faith, not spurious faith, a true Christian could slip into the depths of sin and do anything that any lost person could do? Do you know that a genuine Christian still retains their depravity and has the capacity to do all manner of evil? And so while these people think that they're totally free and these people are totally bound, it's actually these people who cannot do the one thing they were created to do. They think they're enjoying their free life, sowing their wild oats, living by their own law. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. Those are the three darkest chapters of the Bible at the end of Judges when it says that refrain over and over again. And these people think they're free. But verse 36, the Lord Jesus says, you're only indeed free if the Son makes you free. Because you see, Jesus alone sets people free to do and to be and to do what they were created to be and to do. I said it's the glorious doctrine of union with Christ. Verse 36 is the same thing that the Bible constantly beats in its metronome. It's what the Apostle Paul was rejoicing over in Romans 8.2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. It's the same thing Paul wrote to the Galatian churches when he says, it was for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It's what 1 John means when John, this gospel writer, wrote later in 1 John chapter 5 when he said, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. 1 John 5, 12, He who has the Son 
has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So the second point, the mark of a true believer, is true believers are set free by the Son. If you don't have the Son, 1 John 5.12, you do not have freedom. And more fundamentally, you do not have life. You're under delusion. If you have a salvation that is Christless, not only in name, but as your life to live is Christ. So verse 36, again, many of you could say it, even if you don't know you've mem- uh, where it is, many of you have memorized it. So if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Reminds me of September the 12th, 1862. President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation declaring that in September of that year that the following January, 1863, all enslaved people in the United States, quote, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. Friends, God has an emancipation proclamation for all of humanity. Some of you may not like this, but some of the most bound people during shadow slavery in the United States of America were not the people in slavery, but the people in ownership. Because if they were lost and they were saved, these were free and these were bound. The Declaration of Freedom has been signed in the blood of Jesus for any who will come to Him by faith and it has been sealed in His resurrection from the dead. The Bible teaches that the Son of God will set you free from the penalty of your sin, death and hell, that's what you deserve, from the power of sin in this lifetime, progressively being made more like Christ. And Jesus will soon, one day, one glorious day, set us free from the presence of sin in heaven. But to have this freedom in Christ, you must repent of your sin and you must trust Jesus alone to save you. All right, so the second mark of a true believer is the Son. The Lord Jesus, God's only begotten, is at the center of of all your hope to be free from sin, to be rightly related to God. Again, these people thought they were free, didn't they? They didn't think they needed Jesus. You heard the four-minute reading. They didn't need anybody to emancipate them from anything. In their estimation, they were totally free. Jesus was not only unnecessary. He was irrelevant. He wasn't necessary for them to be free. Jesus wasn't the ground of their hopes to be set free from the tyranny of their treasonous rebellion against their creator. They didn't need Jesus to do anything for them. He wasn't the bedrock of their hopes to be made right with God. How do you convince such a person that they are lost? How do you convince such a person who is so bound by their sin that they are not free? Jesus exposes three faulty foundations of their hope which prove they had spurious faith wasted faith they didn't have Christian belief in verse 31 so if you believe you're on your way to heaven when you die and I hope you do and if you're a member of this church I believe that you are headed there not because this membership did anything for you 
We have a membership class coming in June. It starts next week. It'll be right after the service. It'll go for four straight weeks. If you want to pray about membership in this church, you should sign up or register outside and come to those classes. It doesn't make you a member. It just tells you honestly what we believe. Who is God? What is a Christian? What is a church? You can pray about joining this church. We don't think membership makes anybody a Christian here. In fact, our little mantra when somebody joins this church and stands up here publicly and affirms our church's covenant is we say something to this effect almost verbatim exactly like this. Don't hope in this membership. Don't hope in our assessment of your Christianity. Hope in Christ alone. He alone saves. But you have given a biblical profession of faith. I do believe all the members of this church are true converts. And just like there are times you're probably concerned for me, there are plenty of times I'm concerned for many of you who have stalled out, lukewarm, backslidden, whatever moniker you want to put over it. Oh, return to Jesus. But I'm saying to you, not in a psychological manipulation, I'm talking to the members of this church. If you believe you're on your way to heaven when you die, I urge you to examine your faith by the categories Jesus puts forward in this text. Look at these false foundations. And don't wish that the person sitting next to you would perk up and listen. In the end, will your faith prove futile? There's a lot of marks of false faith in the Bible. Consider these three. Trust in your pedigree. Ignoring God's voice. And proving that you're an offspring of the devil. Those are the categories Jesus gives these people to tell them they do not have saving faith. In this passage, I'm persuaded that Jesus is not mainly dealing with the marks of a true believer, the two things we've looked at. He's mainly dealing with false faith. It is true that Jesus set sinners free. If the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. It is true that the truth transforms all who abide in Christ's Word and draw nutrients from Him through Scripture to look to Christ and be more and more progressively changed into His image. That is true. True Christians will seek Jesus through Scripture to know Him more, love Him more, more faithfully follow Him. But false faith is especially what's in the crosshairs of this passage. And the first mark I want to draw it from this text of false converts is trust in their pedigree. Their family line. Their family tree. Look at verse 33. False converts trust in their pedigree. We are Abraham's descendants and never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Well, anybody who's halfway acquainted with their Bible knows how absurd that sentence is. We have never yet been enslaved to anyone. They're talking to Jesus. They know he knows the Bible and he knows they know it. This is absurd. Do you know how shockingly ignorant this is? They're not talking to me. They're not talking to you. They're talking to Jesus. This is stupidity. This is ignorance on display. These people are descendants of Abraham. Many of them could probably pull out the family photo book and trace the tree all the way back to Abraham. 
And therefore they know that they were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. They were captive to Babylon for 70 years. Assyria came in and took the northern 10 tribes of Israel away into Assyria and they never returned. Yes, they have been enslaved. They knew about Roman dominance over Israel in their own day. They knew all about slavery. But I don't believe they were playing dumb about their physical history and their ancestry. I don't think they were asserting that their ancestors were never physically enslaved. I think that they were asserting that they've never been spiritually enslaved. And they're asserting that they are also free on this day when they're talking to Jesus. We've never been enslaved. We're the freest people we know. I bet you are. Because people who believe lies believe lies because they believe them. The hardest people to reach with the gospel are those who have been inoculated by it. I think that they're asserting that they've never been spiritually enslaved. That's the sadness of this passage and of so much of the Bible. Do you know that those people who saw the mighty plagues in Egypt and experienced the Passover and the death of the firstborn in all the Egyptian households and crossed through the Red Sea and had 40 years of God's daily kind provision in the wilderness, do you know that the Bible says most of them were lost? Physically free, spiritually lost. If you don't think that's an accurate assessment, I commend to you Hebrews chapter 3. They died in unbelief. One's family tree never made anybody right with God. If you're still listening to me instead of reading the passage over and over again, if I hadn't bored you too much already, I encourage you to listen to this. Their hope was in their earthly father, Abraham, not in the Savior their father trusted. I'm like a lot of you. And God bless saintly, senior adult, Sunday school teachers of three and four year old classes, and I mean that. God bless little old ladies who get on their knees and pray for little boys and girls, get out their felt board, their puppets, and try to teach them about Jesus. But I want to let you know I was that little boy. I was that kid who did all the church stuff. I went to all the Sunday school classes and the vacation Bible schools, went to all the church camps. I learned the Christian hokey pokey. Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot. I did it all. When I was nine years old, I made a profession of faith in a Baptist church. We're a Baptist church. We're unashamed of that. 
I made a profession of faith in a church like this. I was nine years old in North Carolina, walked down the aisle, talked to the pastor, went to his office. A couple days later, a few weeks later, I was in the baptistry. I got dunked in the baptistry, got my name on a card. They handed me a Bible. They put my name and the date I was saved in the front of it. They presented it to me. And from nine to 19, I lived a lie. I was under spiritual delusion. And if I would have died somewhere in that decade... I would have busted hell wide open and I think that if I could have said a word or two to Jesus, which I seriously doubt anybody's going to get to say in their moment of judgment, I would have laid my blame squarely at the doorstep of other people. They told me I was saved. They told me this. They told me that. Part of the reason I'm preaching so passionate with a broken heart today, and I don't just mean tone of voice, I mean passionate because this matters more than anything else, is because I don't want any of you to be like I once was. Jesus told them, if you're truly Abraham's children, verse 39, do what Abraham did. Do the deeds of your father, which is put their trust in Jesus. One of the metronomes of the New Testament is For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also the Gentile for in it the righteousness of God is revealed for those who are righteous by faith or those who are made righteous by faith shall live. Abraham, we're told in Genesis 15, 6, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what Jesus is saying to these people. Are you Abraham's kids? Do what he did. You think God liked Abraham more because Abraham was a little better pagan than all the people that lived in the Ur of Chaldees? Abraham was a moon worshiper. He walked up the top of the ziggurat, little pyramid-shaped thing with his dad, looked up at the stars at night and worshiped them. That's why when God saved Abraham, he said, I'm going to make your descendants more than all the stars of the heavens. Because it's not about you. And I didn't save you because you're good, because you're better than anybody else. I saved you because I'm God. Abraham believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's true faith. Galatians 3.9, those who are of the faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. You've got to have the same faith Abraham had. So I'm going to ask you right now, I'm going to put it to you as straight as I can. Do you trust God like Abraham trusted God? seamlessness between your faith and his. This man picked up his family and marched out to a land he didn't even know where he was going because God said go. Romans 2 says, you want to know who Abraham's kids are? You want to know who the true Jews are? Romans 2.29, those who are Jews inwardly, circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. His praise doesn't come from man, but from God. Paul can't stop praising God for the fact that salvation is not on the basis of family tree, but on the basis of Christ alone. Listen to Philippians 3.3. We are the true circumcision. We're really Abraham's kids who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. These people trusted their family tree They had never leaned by faith on the Spirit of God to glory in Christ Jesus. They had never repented of trusting their own flesh and their pedigree. You understand what Jesus is saying in verse 39. He's saying it doesn't matter what family you came from. 
If you want to be in Abraham's spiritual family tree, if you want to belong to Abraham's God, then you must put your trust in Abraham's Savior. And Jesus is clearly claiming to be that Savior. This is so common today, isn't it? I mean, it's epidemic in our day. It's rampant in our day. And nobody thinks they're that one. Everybody thinks somebody else is that one. For people to assume they're right with God because they were born someplace to some people, some religious family, some construct, some church. The distinctive, the distinctive of Christianity is not that it is the only faith system. We know there's a lot of mosques, Hindu temples, Mormon tabernacles, and all sorts of other religious systems that are meeting as we speak. The distinctive of Christianity is not that it's the only faith system. And we're not the only faith system that says there's nothing that your parents can do to save you. Instead, Christianity does have a distinctive from all the other faith systems. And the core distinctive is Christianity alone asserts that God did for us what we could never do for ourselves Namely, he sent his son. You want to talk about a family tree? The eternal father sent the eternal son to come to this sin-torn world to rescue rebels against God who deserve an eternal death. And that son accomplished salvation for sinners like you and I by taking upon himself the curse of our sin dying in our stead and rising again to prove that he's the only mediator between God and men. Anyone from any family tree, even from somebody as jacked up a family tree as me, anybody who puts their trust in the Messiah that God has sent will be saved. John the Baptist understood this he knew it was going to be a problem. He knew that he had to preach to his generation about their challenges. You know what John the Baptist's message was? This man who preached with his hair on fire out in the wilderness and baptizing folks left and right who repented of their sins. You know what his message was to his generation? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father, for I'm telling you right now that God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. God doesn't have any grandchildren. That's not just Christian cliche. You don't get saved because you were born in such and such a family or such and such a religion or such and such a church. You don't get saved because of who your mama is, your daddy is. God only has children. And those are they who put their trust in His unique Son, like Abraham did, which John wrote in chapter 1, Jesus alone gives us the right to become children of God. So the first mark of spurious faith is to trust in your pedigree. That is some familial line other than Christ, any construct other than the Creator, the Lord Jesus. But notice, before we go to the second mark of spurious faith, these people did think God was their Father. And guess what you're not going to do with such people? Argue them into heaven. 
You can talk to your blue in the face until a supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit shines a divine and supernatural light into their hearts. They're not going to get it. Nobody here is claiming to be a better preacher than Jesus. And these people didn't get it when Jesus said it to them. But notice the mark Jesus tells these people that would be true if God were their father. It's in verse 42. I'm going to give you a second to look at it. Because I want you to reckon with God yourself. How can you know if God is your father? Thank you, Jesus. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. How does Jesus know they're not related to God at all? Zero love to Christ. No manifestation of a lifestyle of loving obedience to Christ, which is the distinguishing mark of true conversion. Not sinless perfection, but love to Jesus that says, I don't want to live in sin anymore. Why would I hold on to that for which my Savior died? They don't love Jesus. When the Father sent His Son to be our Redeemer, and the Son lived the life we were supposed to perfectly, sinlessly, always loving the Lord as God with all His heart, soul, mind, and strength. And He took that life of perfection to the cross and He was condemned in our stead. Romans 8.3 The Father proved that He accepted the sacrifice of His Son by raising Him from the dead and seating Him at His right hand in heaven. And the Bible promises that all who believe upon the Lord Jesus for forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God will have a common testimony. I'm not asking you if you prayed a prayer, if you've been baptized, church member. No, 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 no. I'm asking you, has Jesus run away to heaven with your heart? Do you love Him? The Puritan said, a love that excels all other loves. There's books galore with titles from yesteryear. All loves excelling. The true Christian's love to the unseen Christ. Has He run away to heaven with your heart? If not, you need to check your faith. You need to repent of it. You need to tell God you're sorry you believed a lie. You need to ask Him to give you faith to believe the truth. The second mark of spurious faith, false converts, is people who tell you they're Christian all day long, but they ignore God's voice. The first was our major point. The second two are are much briefer. The passage doesn't give as much territory to them, but there is certainly something here. They ignore God's voice. Look at verse 31. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Inference, you are not abiding in my word. Look at verse 37. You're going to need your Bible for this point. Verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Look at verse 43. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. Look at 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. We could dip into verse 51 if you want to skim that. Or 52. 
or 55, do you see a common theme? These people in verse 31 are said to be believers. And seven times we're told they totally ignore God's word. It's false faith. It's wasted faith. These people aren't under grace. They're under delusion. They know the Bible. They know Bible verses. They're more well-versed in the Bible than most of us, me included. But they've never known the Bible's primary subject. Three chapters earlier, Jesus told us the entire Bible was about him. If you believe Moses, you believe me, because John 5.39, Moses wrote about me. They know the Bible, they just don't know what the Bible's all about. They suppose that they know the voice of God, but Jesus is telling them, you're deaf. You've never heard his voice. How do you help convince somebody who thinks they can hear that they're totally deaf? You can't do it. You want to know something that's crippling for every preacher I know? Sends us into the prayer closet, puts us on our face before God. Every preacher I know has the same testimony. We have an impossible message to believe. God sent an eternal message deity into time to be robed in flesh. Live a life we were supposed to, die a death we were supposed to, rise from the dead, and if you don't believe that message, you're going to hell. We believe that. And the audience to whom we are to deliver this impossible message is totally dead. Every preacher I know gets put on their face very often. Because Jesus is talking to people who think they hear God and Jesus is saying, you are deaf. My word has no place in you. One of the ways I prayed this week, God, would you save us from a subjective, man-made, Bibleless Christianity? If we belong to Jesus and follow him, we will most assuredly be Bible people. But unlike these false believers in John 8, we will not use the book as an end in itself to prop ourselves up and tell everybody else how wrong they are. Instead, this book will be the source of objective truth upon which we stand in order to see the glory of our Savior. Without the vistas of this book, you can't know Christ. This is a means to an end. The Bible is not the fourth member of the Trinity. We don't worship this book. It's not an end in itself. It's a window through which we see the face of our God in Christ by the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit who inspired its contents. So God save us from any subjective man-made Bibleless Christianity. The Bible's not to be wielded as these people used it to entrench them in their unbelief. Verse 54 says, God the Father has glorified God the Son as the object of all saving faith. The Father has glorified me. The Bible is clear. Whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, Jesus alone saves. And these people boasted of their relationship with Abraham and Jesus wanted them to know that Abraham boasted of his relationship with Jesus. Do you see it? They boasted of their relationship to Abraham. Jesus is saying that Abraham boasted of his relationship with Jesus. 
Look at these glorious verses. You know them well. Verse 56 to 58. Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. The Jew said, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Again, Jesus is here claiming his deity. Without doubt, Jesus is declaring himself in verse 58 to be the God of the Old Testament the creator of the universe, the God of the patriarchs. You may disagree with that. You're going to have to reckon with Jesus about that disagreement. These Jews boasted of their relationship to Abraham, but again, Jesus wanted them to know that Abraham boasted of his relationship to to Jesus. This is the fourth use of I am in John 8. It's the most explicit declaration of Jesus concerning his deity of all four. In verse 12, I am the light of the world. Verse 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Verse 28, so Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, that's the cross, then you will know that I am. And right here, before Abraham was born, I am. You're not yet 50 years old. You're right. I'm eternal. I'm the self-existent, immutable, unchangeable deity. I'm God. Dear people, do you see in Jesus what Jesus claimed that Abraham saw in Jesus 2,000 years before Jesus was born? Abraham lived then, 2,000 years before Christ. He rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. I already told you that God saved Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldees, a pagan place full of pagan people with pagan religions. And Jesus is saying, he rejoiced to see my day. When finally he was awakened out of his spiritual delusion, thinking that he was right with all his little tribal deities, and I invaded his life with the truth of the gospel, that I alone am God. I am unconditional election not based on anything from Abraham's doing, effectual calling, snatching him like a brand from the fire, plucking him up out of all those pagan people around him, not on the basis of who he was, effectual calling. God justified him, sanctified him, and now has glorified him. True converts listen to God's voice. False converts, God's word has no place in their life. And they certainly don't look through the window of truth to see the face of God. Third and finally, the mark of false faith is the most sobering. And Jesus doesn't mince words. The third mark is you belong to the devil. Look at verse 38. The middle of the verse, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. Look at verse 41. You are doing the deeds of your father. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded from God and have come from God. You can see those three times, 38, 41, 42, that Jesus is referring to your father. They don't like what he's saying, so they seek to assassinate his character. That's so common, so common today. 
We were not born of fornication, verse 41. They're saying that his mom was a loose woman. They knew probably that he was born out of wedlock, and the only conclusion that they can draw is she must have been a prostitute. We weren't born of fornication. We don't have a dirty family tree like you, Jesus. We're from Abraham. Little did they know about the immaculate conception and the virgin birth, which are prerequisites to Jesus being a sinless Savior and the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. The woman will be with child and she will bear a sign. The government will be upon his shoulders. The virgin will have a child, Isaiah said. It's not until verse 44 that Jesus gets explicit about those three, your father, your father, your father. Look at 44. You are of your father, the devil. You are of your father, the devil. You know what Jesus is saying, right? They bear a family resemblance. And they don't look anything like God. They look a whole lot like the devil. They look like their diabolical father. The family traits are strikingly similar. So what were the birthmarks, Jesus? that made it so obvious to you that they evidently, manifestly, obviously had familial bonds to Satan. How can you tell that he's their father? He says three things that show that they're related to Satan, not to God. In verse 44, their desires revealed that they belong to Satan. You want to do the desires of your father. Number two, They had lying lips, which revealed they belonged to Satan and not to God. Verse 44 again. He doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever Satan speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's first words in the Bible were, guess what? A scripture-twisting lie, which is what these people are doing. And you look just like Satan. You look like your dad. They were doing the same thing with the Abrahamic narrative of the Old Testament, twisting Scripture's meaning to make themselves look good. That's exactly what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. Verse 44 says, from the beginning. I take that to mean a reference to the Garden of Eden. And number three, Jesus said their murderous hatred revealed that they belonged to Satan and not to God. So their desires, their lies, and their murderous hatred. Verse 44, he was a murderer from the beginning. Did you notice that our passage ended with these people in verse 59 wanting to murder Jesus? You look just like your dad. These people were offspring of the devil. I don't know if you know this or not, but many of you do. I know, I know many of you know this, but I don't know if all of you know this or not. The Bible teaches plainly that every person who is born is born under the family dominance of the prince of the power of the air, Satan, doing his bidding, believing his lies, headed to his eternal damning home. And Jesus is saying that these people are in that family. Well, here's our application. It comes straight out of the passage. So just let your eyes fall on these verses. And then we're going to sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Verse 31, turn to Jesus by faith. Abide in His Word. He will transform you into what He wants you to be. 
How is your relationship with your Bible? And is that relationship causing you to be more captivated by Christ? Or is it making you more like these people, crotchety toward everybody else because you're a Bible know-it-all? Be careful for becoming as good as Satan at using your Bible. He knows it better than you, but he's never been changed by it. Verse 31 teaches that Christ's disciples continue, abide, remain, practice his word. Verse 32 teaches that such following Jesus by abiding more deeply in his word changes us, sets us free. So be like Jeremiah, find God's words and eat them until your heart is filled up with the glory and the grace of Christ. Number two, verse 36 Turn to Jesus by faith. The Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. He will set you free from the shackles of all sin, especially in this text, God belittling sin, and you'll get to join Him in what makes God very happy. Jesus said it, He glorifies me. You will be glad-hearted in your obedience to God's Word because you will be more and more captivated by Christ if you turn to Him. Verse 39, number 3, do the deeds of Abraham. When God calls you, no matter what he says to you, don't bargain with God. Don't ask him for his work on your time. Do the deeds of Abraham. Verse 39. Pick up your entire life. Pick up your family. Everything that's familiar to you, follow Jesus. Trust Christ. Leave Ur of the Chaldees. Go wherever God is saying to go because He intends to glorify Himself through you. Love Him. Until He's run away to heaven with your heart, keep turning, keep looking, keep praying. If God is your Father, you will love Jesus. Turn to Him until your heart bursts with real, biblical, bedrock love to Christ. And finally, Verses 51 and 52. Embrace him not only for time, but also for eternity. It is not death to die in Jesus. Two of our church members, family members, passed away this week as was prayed earlier, and soon we'll all join them. It is not death to die if you're in Jesus, but it's double death if you die in your sins. Verse 51 says that if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Verse 52, the Jews say, how can you say if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death? That's because it's not death to die. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Or 2 Corinthians 5, to depart from this life is to immediately be with the Lord. So I started today by asking you a question, and this is where we'll close. How do you convince a deaf person that they can't hear? How do you convince a blind person that they can't see? Or as our passage raises an even more challenging issue, how do you convince a dead person that they're not alive? Are you one of those surfacey believers of verse 31 who by the time you reach verse 59... A little over 20 verses later, you're ready to stone Jesus for telling you the truth? Friends, the Gospel of John was initially written to evangelize the Jews. It's clearly an evangelistic tract to the Jews. That's the churchy people. That's us. That's the religious crowd. 
And John didn't write to condemn them. John wrote these 21 chapters because he wanted them to be saved. But mark this down. God's word does not fail when the religious population of Jesus' day or of our day refuse to embrace him as the Lord's Christ. The word of God will endure through every generation into eternity, even if you and I refuse to turn to Jesus by faith. But here's the question of questions. And it's the, I save it for last because it's the only way I know how to knock on the door of a dead person and ask them to come to life. Why would you perish when such a Savior stands ready to set you free indeed? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the Son of God. Because if the Son sets us free, we're free indeed. So much territory in Scripture that deals with the themes of our passage, so I just leave to you, Lord, what you said in Romans 9 for these people. I I pray over us all. It is not the children of Abraham who are regarded as descendants, but the children of promise who are sons. Your word has not failed. And I'm asking, oh God, that you will cause Romans 9.16 to happen. Salvation does not depend on the man who wills, upon the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy. Would you mercifully open any eyes to see Christ, any ears to hear Christ, every heart to believe Christ who is still bound in their sin, even if it's religious bondage. And would you cause true faith to rise in our hearts that's manifested in love to the Son and continuing in His Word with the life of obedience for Your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.